Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, promises to help the bottom line and the planet at the same time. Is it too good to be true? Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of an episode digging into that very question. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. So much this week. Power and ambition, vengeance and absolution. Start with the sentencing of President Trump's political advisor, Roger Stone. The former dirty trickster for Richard Nixon was sentenced to 40 months in prison for obstructing a congressional inquiry and for lying under oath. Protesters were waiting outside the courthouse. President Trump openly lobbied for leniency and attacked Stone's prosecutors, who resigned from the case after U.S. Attorney General William Barr withdrew a harsh sentencing recommendation. Barr said Trump's Twitter campaigning made his job impossible and made it known he could resign, too. An uncharacteristically unbothered President Trump had this to say. He's a very straight shooter. We have a great attorney general and he's working very hard and he's working against a lot of people that don't want to see good things happen, in my opinion. The Democrats, unified in denouncing Trump over these moves, tore each other apart at a debate in Las Vegas this week. Several united to attack billionaire former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg. He spent hundreds of millions in his own money to propel his political fortunes after sitting out Iowa and New Hampshire. Frontrunner Bernie Sanders said Bloomberg embodied the problems of the U.S. economy. Mike Bloomberg owns more wealth than the bottom 125 million Americans. This hour on point, the scope of presidential power in the 2020 elections. We have a terrific panel here today. Usted Herndon is with me right here in New York City in studio. He's a national political reporter for The New York Times. Usted, welcome. Thank you. Joining us from Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, is Amanda Turkle, where she's HuffPost's Washington bureau chief. Amanda, welcome back to On Point. Hi, thanks for having me. Also joining us from Washington is Betsy Woodruff-Swan. She's politics reporter for The Daily Beast. Betsy, welcome to On Point. Thanks for having me. Betsy, uh, you've covered a lot of stuff in in courtrooms in recent years. Let's turn for a moment to Roger Stone. Uh, He was uh, sentenced uh, to prison about 40 months in jail. Talk to us a little bit about uh, what Roger Stone's uh, conviction is for and what it represents. The the way that Judge Amy, uh, the judge framed this yesterday was simply in terms of whether or not truth matters. Roger Stone was convicted for lying to Congress and for witness tampering and for interfering in a congressional investigation. His lawyers said the fact that he lied or the allegations, they call them allegations, that he lied about a back channel to WikiLeaks involving WikiLeaks hacked information that they leaked during 2016. Roger Stone's lawyers argued that the lie didn't really matter because ultimately Ultimately, special counsel Robert Mueller's team was able to get to the bottom of the story over the course of their investigation. They said, all told, eventually the truth came out. The fact that Roger lied is not significant. 
the judge uh, pushed back Amy really hard against that. Judge Amy Berman Jackson pushed back mm-hmm. really vociferously against that. And she said, look, Roger Stone might say, so what? The truth doesn't matter. But the truth matters to me. It matters to the prosecutors. It matters to Congress. And and this was a really important but overlooked little moment in court yesterday. She said the truth also mattered to the jurors and said that they had been practicing or they had gone through this process with integrity. That's really important because President Trump and Roger Stone's legal team have both homed in on the leader of the jury and said that her history of anti-Trump Twitter comments and social media posts means that the process of the trial was unfair was unfair to Stone. The judge basically implicitly said, implicitly pushed back against that argument in saying that the jury acted with integrity and in saying that despite the arguments from Stone's lawyers, truth still is paramount. Yeah, she she took a clear side. And before we we take a moment and talk a little bit about the president, let's take a moment, uh, Betsy Woodruff-Swan, and remind listeners what Stone was convicted of lying about, what Stone had done that got him to this point. At the crux of the investigation and what he was convicted of lying about was the question of how he may have had communications with WikiLeaks. Roger Stone told congressional investigators that he had a go-between to WikiLeaks named Randy Credico. Credico is a longtime lefty New York comedian, radio host, and criminal justice reform activist. Stone claimed to Congress that Credico was his go-between. But in fact, the truth was that at the time, Stone actually believed a different person, a conspiracy theorist named Jerome Corsi, was running interference for him with WikiLeaks. Stone asked questions of Corsi, asked Corsi to approach the WikiLeaks team regarding the 2016 emails, asked Corsi to gather information for him, and then Corsi made predictions and comments to Stone about what WikiLeaks was going to be up to. What we still don't know and what wasn't in the Mueller report is if there was actually meaningful communication between Corsi and the folks at WikiLeaks. Corsi has not been indicted. The Mueller team tried really hard to get him, but ultimately did not bring charges against him. So that last potential uh, link, which may or may not exist, is still something we don't know the truth about. But this question of how Roger Stone may or may not have gotten information from WikiLeaks and through who, that's what he lied to Congress about. And that's kind of at the crux of his conviction. And very much uh, involved the question of what he was doing in the 2016 race to help the president, how these uh, uh, leaks of emails from the Democrats appeared on WikiLeaks and damaging Hillary Clinton's uh, campaign and cause. Amanda Turkle, uh, this happens uh, in that context. Uh, in addition, it happens in the question of what's going on at the Justice Department. So let's hear a little bit from what the president had to say about this. Yesterday, President Trump spoke directly about what he might do for Roger Stone. Uh, Trump made these remarks in Las Vegas at a commencement address for the Hope for Prisoner Program's graduation ceremony. I'm not going to do anything in terms of the great powers bestowed upon a president of the United States. I want the process to play out. I think that's the best thing to do. Because I'd love to see Roger exonerated, and I'd love to see it happen, because I personally think he was treated very unfairly. Uh, Exonerated, an interesting choice of words there, Amanda Turkle. You know, William Barr, uh, the attorney general, intervened uh, in order to uh, withdraw the filing by four prosecutors to say that Stone should get actually a fairly severe sentence under the guidelines, and the judge offered a slightly less severe one. 2,200 former uh, 
Department of Justice uh, staffers and prosecutors have called for the attorney general to resign over this case. What is the what is at stake for the attorney general right now and what is at stake for the direction of the Justice Department as you see it? Well, I think the independence of the Justice Department is at stake, and I think uh, William Barr realizes that to some extent. I mean, obviously, he has been an incredibly protective attorney general uh, for Donald Trump, and Trump knows that, which is why you know he uh, chose him and why he has not yet fired him. Uh, but you know, th- this process that Trump is just going to let processes, sort of independent processes, play out is is honestly laughable. You know, he has been making comments and tweeting throughout. He's been attacking, as Betsy said, the jury. Uh, he has been uh, making clear that he can intervene at any time. He's been choosing who he puts in and out of uh, certain appointments uh, because he wants someone and he wants a process that will protect him. And I don't think something like a pardon is out of the question for Roger Stone. And many people are wondering just how quickly it will come. Um, and so Barr has started to push back a little bit. Uh, you know, reports are that he was doing it privately. It wasn't really working. So he started to do it publicly, saying, you know, I cannot do my job if the president continues to sort of imply that the Justice Department is under his thumb. Morale is not good at the Justice Department. Um, and more and more people who used to work at the Justice Department are speaking out now and saying, like, look, this is not the way it can be. And so I think Barr is trying to clean this mess up a little bit. Instead, as you look at this, uh, you know, there's some questions about whether what the uh, Bill Barr did in talking to Pierre Thomas a week ago of ABC News and saying, look, this is making my job hard. And then essentially, it seems to me, going around leaking to several major news organizations, <laughs> folks, I might resign if the president doesn't get this under control. This is a problem for me. Uh, is this kabuki theater, as uh, some of the president's critics might suggest, or are these fundamental tensions between the person charged with running the law enforcement mechanism of the federal government and the person atop the federal government? Well, I think it can be a little bit of both. Uh, you have uh, throughout the Trump administration, you've had uh, individuals uh, in the cabinet try to use that method uh, of pushing back against the president a little publicly to create some distance, to create some sense of independence. It's gone uh, well for some. It's gone worse for others, right. depending on the president's mood that day and depending on how much power they have. Um, but Barr's in a particularly important position. As you mentioned, uh, he has been a protective uh, attorney general for the president, and the president knows that. And so uh, he, even more so than others, is in a place where he can say, oh, uh, I I haven't liked the tweets. And there's not much President Trump is going to do about that just because uh, of what he is doing in terms of uh, um, uh, protecting the president on a a number of key issues. But uh, let's not overstate what what Barr said in that interview and going forward. He, uh, although he he said it made his job uncomfortable, he virtually praised the president in in other forms and has... uh, not taken kind of concrete actions towards resignation, just to kind of back channel uh, uh, media um, kind of uh, leaking. And also the they came out pretty swiftly and said that he is now has no intention of resigning and that shouldn't be on anyone's radar. So it was kind of case open, case closed, a kind of 24-hour period that can put it out there in the ether, but doesn't require a kind of public uh, uh, reckoning with those concerns. And so I think we should kind of temper what we think about here. Yes, he did push back in some senses, but it's not an actionable step um, that, ha- that, that should have folks rethinking that this is something other than what we know, which is an attorney general that has acted within the president's interests. And instead, in the minute that we have left before we take our first break, it seems to me as also as though Barr was something of a unicorn. He entered 
this job. I wouldn't say he necessarily holds it now, but with essentially an endorsement by the elite and at the same time held strong ideas about the almost boundless authority of the executive mm -hmm. uh, and the idea that Trump is opposed effectively by people scattered through government who constitute something that the president would call the deep state. Right. There's a meeting of ideological interests here. This isn't just Barr as a, a, a personal loyalist to the president. He has a larger idea of what that office should be able to do that the presidency uh, has benefited from, frankly. And so that makes him a little different than someone like a Jeff Sessions, the attorney general of the past or other folks, because he has a project in his mind uh, that this administration serves as a vehicle for. Uh, I'd like you guys to stick around, Betsy, Ested, and Amanda. Folks, I'd like you to stick around as well. We are talking about this week in the news. We're talking about how these dynamics play out in other elements of the national security realm in government. Uh, I'm David Fulkenflick, and this is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. A recent episode featured a debate about ESG, or environmental social governance. This sounds like more work than just putting your money into a social impact fund. It's a lot more work. Yeah. Anybody who thinks there's an easy solution here is either engaged in puffery, greenwash, or deceiving themselves. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of the episode. This is On Point. I'm David Folkenflick. We're talking about the past week in the news. We've been talking about tension in the Justice Department, and then we'll talk about tensions in other parts of government. I'm here with Betsy Woodruff-Swan. She's a politics reporter for The Daily Beast, Ested Herndon, national political reporter for The New York Times, and Amanda Turkle, the Washington bureau chief for The Huffington Post. Uh, Amanda, uh, the president exercised uh, one of the powers that he has under the United States Constitution, and it is the power uh, to pardon and the power to 11 certain other sentences. President Trump commuted the 14-year prison sentence for former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich on Tuesday. After his release, Blagojevich, a Democrat throughout his political career, expressed his full support for the president. He gets things done. He's a problem solver in a business where too many politicians don't want to solve problems. All they want to do is play politics and get nothing done for the people. He's, he's, he's got a, I'm a Trumpocrat. The Trumpocrat, that's right. If I have the ability to vote, I'm going to vote for him. Obviously, if Blagojevich had been in Florida, I guess he would have had his vote restored recently. Uh, the former governor there saying he is a Trumpocrat. Uh, Amanda Turkle, give us a feel for uh, the, the breadth and nature of these uh, commutations and pardons, uh, what unifies them, what you take away from them? Well, what unifies them is that they're all incredibly well-connected people who figured out a way sort of around the normal system to get Trump's attention, uh, you know, going on 
uh, outlets like Fox News appealing to allies of President Trump. Rod Blagojevich's wife uh, was sort of going on media. And, you know, obviously that Trump knew Rod Blagojevich. He was on Celebrity Apprentice. So, again, just another well-connected person who gets who gets off under Trump. Um, you know, and this is these people did not go through the normal uh, process through the Justice Department, where the Justice Department reviews these, makes recommendations and things like that, that other pre- presidents traditionally follow. Trump simply found people he wanted to help, and he did it. And that's why you have Rod Blagojevich incredibly happy, you know, saying that he's now a Trump supporter. I don't think is making many Democrats upset. I don't think you have Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden out there hoping that they were going to get Rod Blagojevich's endorsement ahead of the, uh, you know, the primary in Illinois. (laughs) Um, So I think, you know, Trump can have him if he wants is the way most Democrats feel. And it's just, you know, again, there are so many people out there who are in uh, prison for, you know, with sort of sentences that are uh, longer than they should be based on the crime because of old rules that are seen, you know, old laws that seem incredibly outdated now. And those people who may not have connections are not getting the help. It's these politically connected, famous people who appeal to Trump. One one element of the Blagojevich thing that strikes me, uh, Betsy Woodruff-Swan, is that Blagojevich uh, got caught up in the criminal system uh, for selling a Senate seat that was vacant, essentially saying, who's going to take care of me? And that Senate seat was the person that that Trump seems to want to be the inverse of at every turn, Barack Obama. It does not seem to me to be incidental that that was what was going on. Why were – if what Amanda says is true and the president does have this constitutional power, why were these particular pardons controversial rather than just sort of more of same? Many presidents have pardoned controversial characters, of course, notably at the very end of his time in office. Bill Clinton pardoned Mark Rich, who was quite a notorious figure. These pardons are interesting because they... And donor, yes. These pardons are interesting because they point to the way that Trump thinks about the criminal justice system as, you know, very nasty and unfair against people who he sees like him. One one little story, something that I found notable as I was reporting on these pardons, when the mm. news about Blagojevich and others came out, I chatted with a Republican member of Congress about the pardons. And the member said, you know, look, I don't have a problem with you know, the president, you know, pardoning some of these folks. I think clemency is great. However, I wish that the president would throw in a couple non violent drug offenders when he goes on these pardoning sprees, it would make it politically easier for me to defend. I thought that was notable. So I looked up the list of pardons and commutations after I got off the phone with that member and realized that the president actually had also pardoned two yep. nonviolent drug offenders. But it's yep. not something he talked about. It's not something the White House talked about. And they didn't give a heads up to their allies on Capitol Hill that the president wasn't just pardoning ultra wealthy, ultra well connected white collar criminals. And that shows very much what was front of mind for President Trump as he was going through this pardon process over the last week or two. And I just want I wanted to jump in and add one more thing, too, is that the vast sure. majority of these people were white men. And that is not obviously who the criminal justice system uh, usually goes after and over sentences. But those are the people that Trump has been looking out for. I appreciate that. We have a call. We take calls through this hour. We, we have listeners call in and sort of ask questions that help guide us as we think about these things. We have a call from Mary Jean from Maine. She left this question about why President Trump has of late fired members of his staff. Could you talk about all of these firings and losses and his um, his complete disregard for um, having people with qualification and also how it is that even ex- even longtime 
uh, Republicans who care about the country, why are they not speaking up? Well, let's take some inspiration from that, Ested Herndon, and talk a little bit about what we saw play out in the last few days in the intelligence world. Uh, Joseph McGuire was the president's pick as director of national intelligence after uh, Dan Coats uh, uh, was eased out, shall we say, uh, who had also been the president's pick. And the president took exception to what played out on Capitol Hill at the House of Representatives involving intelligence. What happened there? Yeah, um, reporting um, that came from my colleagues uh, in Washington from the Times started this off. Um, the, the reporting was that there was a meeting in which uh, McGuire informed lawmakers of uh, Russia's attempts to influence the upcoming election in 2020, uh, informing of uh, uh, the kind of normal uh, top level of, of congressional officials, including uh, Democrat lead intelligence, uh, Congressman Adam Schiff, and that when the president found out about this, that he was upset, not because of uh, the ongoing attempts from Russia to influence the election, but he saw this as something that could be political politically damaging, was particularly um, seemingly upset at Schiff's presence in that meeting. And so what we have was uh, uh, um – what we saw was the president has now um, removed uh, uh, or appointed a new uh, DNI officer, and this person is a, a, a loyalist to the president, someone who is kind of a known uh, kind of personal backer. And this tracks with what we have seen Trump uh, do previously is not really not not take deference to the idea that um, intelligence officers, uh, State Department officers, what he would call the deep state, have a responsibility to the American public at large or time or to the bigger kind of public. Public service project, but that their loyalty should lie principally with him and his political interest. And so when that line is crossed in his mind, that person, we have seen this over and over and over again, becomes almost immediately uh, useless. To the, ca- to the caller's point about why aren't Republicans saying anything, the answer to that is politics. The answer is that uh, while they will privately express concerns and have done so over the years or might say things mildly in the public eye, they know, as we all do, especially coming out of the midterms, that this is Donald Trump's Republican Party and their political futures are tied to him. And so we have seen kind of the we have seen Republicans uh, kind of unite around that. And uh, it's not really all that complicated anymore. It's a cynical answer, but it's the <laughs> clearest one. They're not pushing Based in, back. in the reporting of yourself and others. Yep, yep, yep certainly. And they're not pushing back because uh, their political futures are tied to the president. The acting David, director. If I can, uh, if I can yeah, jump in, in on, the, on the topic Please, of the Betsy. Office of the Director of National Intelligence, Joe McGuire, who held that role up until very early this week, is someone who is really respected within that office. He'd been in intelligence for a long time, very seasoned, really knew what he was doing. And this week, there's just been extraordinary churn within ODNI, which, of course, is the intelligence agency that was set up after 9-11 to basically coordinate, kind of herd the cats of all the other intelligence agencies the U.S. government has. What we've seen this week, we saw the top lawyer in ODNI, Jason Klatenik, announce that he's going to be leaving. Joe McGuire, of course, was sort of shown the door uh, earlier this week. And then Andrew Hallman, who's been uh, having the role of what's called 
principal deputy DNI. It's basically the top managerial role within this top managerial intelligence agency. He also is expected to be leaving the to be leaving the office later today. New York Times reported that yesterday, and I was able to confirm it uh, with a former intelligence official uh, yesterday evening. To have so many very senior officials in the U.S. intelligence agency that's responsible for intelligence coordination all to be on their way out at the same time is causing extraordinary turmoil there. And on top of that, we have these new folks coming in who are expected potentially to make some changes that President Trump will like. First, of course, Ambassador Rick Grinnell, who's been the ambassador to Germany, somebody who's been a very open political loyalist to the president and who doesn't have experience working in an intelligence agency. And in addition to that, Cash Patel, who was formerly a staffer to Congressman Devin Nunes. Nunes, of course, is arguably Trump's most devoted ally on Capitol Hill. And Patel has been reported by numerous outlets, including Politico and by the Daily Beast, that he also is going to be headed over to ODNI along with Rick Rennell. So this is a really significant moment for that office and by extension for the intelligence community as a whole. It's a moment of just immense turmoil. Sounds like that much of the top leadership of, of intelligence has been cut off. Instead, uh, one of the things that strike me, uh, Betsy has just mentioned in this granular and in, in, insightful account, you know, what's being brought on. Rick Grinnell, the ambassador of Germany, has other responsibilities in Europe. He's going to keep those posts while he's the acting uh, director of intelligence. Uh, I knew him when he praised me for some coverage I did years ago and then – in maybe a month or two later turned and has almost trolled me ever since <laughs> on Twitter. It's a person who's been in some ways in a Trumpian mold, uh, somebody embracing uh, not only political combat but trying to cast journalists as though they are political enemies or foes in some ways. This is a person account of a top of an agency where there's some question about the importance of putting out reliable information that is not – uh, slanted by partisanship. And instead, I just want to mention and remind, you know, this is about the question of the briefing that the Russians were actively involved in trying to interfere in this election as well as they did in 2016 and that they were doing so on behalf of President Trump. Back in 2016, President Obama intended to talk about that publicly and Senate Majority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell said, we will accuse you of partisanship and of tainting intelligence if you do. And it turned out that intelligence wasn't tainted, that there was an effort by Russians there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you lay it out there. I mean, this is kind of a growing, uh, uh, you know, this is both expected and, and still uh, kind of startling to be back at this point. Uh, there was so much uh, uh, kind of conversation and and uh, angst in Washington around those efforts in 2016. And then obviously we have the Mueller investigation that lays them out for the public eye. But what we were missing in that moment, um, and particularly as someone who spends a lot of their time on the trail, is thinking about what was coming next, right? It wasn't just an effort that stopped in 2016, but one that the intelligence community warned was ongoing and would persist throughout uh, 2020 and beyond. And we have not seen the administration uh, take steps in which to kind of proactively uh, own that and proactively say, hey, here's what we're doing to try to combat that. And and, in the inverse, we see this week that they have decided to put those kind of political concerns at the forefront of what is a real democracy question at its core. And I think it's important to mention that that loyalist, Grinnell, who will now have um, this role, I mean, there 
there are real questions about how it will be used. But I go back to the politics point. Um, this is a, a this is a meeting of the minds of where the grassroots Trump base has been on the question of deep state and the journalists for a while. They have wanted to see the kind of uh, 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 respected uh, intelligence community pushed out for what they believe uh, should be a, 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 an organization that works in the interests of the president. Betsy Woodruff Swan, I want to take a couple of minutes and to some folks that may say, hey, this is, you know, this seems a little picayune, a little too much in the weeds. Let's not do this. But the Hill newspaper published a report from its editor in chief, uh, Bob Cusick, uh, about the reporting of one of its investigative reporters turned opinion commentators, John Solomon. He's a guy with an incredible track record at the Washington Post, the Associated Press, other places as a prominent investigative reporter. He did a lot of reporting on Ukraine. He did a lot of reporting on the Bidens, Hunter Biden, former Vice President Joe Biden, that suggested possibly criminal activity there. And it turned out that a lot of this was closely tethered to what uh, Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal lawyer, has been up to in regard to Ukraine. Tell us about the findings and tell us why they matter, Betsy. It's easy to, I think, safely assume that the entire impeachment process might not have happened had John Solomon not written a series of stories in The Hill making a number of claims and arguments about former Ukrainian government officials. He was the one who first pushed uh, the case against the Bidens based on the fact that a former Ukrainian prosecutor, Viktor Shokin, was pushed out of the prosecutor's office in part at the urgings of Joe Biden, who was vice president. Solomon helped push this narrative that the reason Biden wanted Shokin removed was to protect Burisma, the Ukrainian energy company where his son had served on the board. In the months since then, uh, it's become evident that the story is much, much more complicated than that and that there's no clear public evidence at all that Biden pushed for Shokin to be fired in order to protect his son. Of course, when you're dealing with the Ukrainian energy sector, there are immense levels of corruption and the company whose board his son served on is not a particularly squeaky clean one, to put it delicately. But the way that Solomon's stories framed this situation was was without any particularly high level of nuance uh, and the result was that these stories entered the Fox News media ecosystem. They got to the president and subsequently the president pressured the president of Ukraine to look into these topics. So now we have the Hill kind of retrospectively looking back at that process, especially given that during the impeachment hearings, many of Trump's own uh, diplomats said that they believed the Hill's narrative was totally off base. And what this and review called, does, And called Solomon out for, by name. Exactly. Called him out by name, something that's pretty extraordinary. Uh, and what this review does is it takes a retrospective look back at his articles. It's interesting in some ways for what it doesn't do. Nothing was retracted. I, uh, yeah. you, you, may, you may have read this more closely than I have. I don't think anything was even corrected. And the main thing that The Hill basically seemed to conclude is that – one of the key mistakes was was classifying these stories as opinion uh, rather than holding them to the same standards as regular news stories. But of course, I think as we all know and as all normal journalism outlets would adhere to, just because something's in the opinion page doesn't mean it doesn't have to be factual. Like <laughs> facts matter regardless of whether you have a news or opinion button on top of your article. And The Hill and doesn't Betsy, really address that in this review. In little under a minute that we have left, Betsy, it strikes me a couple of things. First, they don't acknowledge that uh, basically 
he was being he, – he, he apparently lied to his editors about whether he was being given things by Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani publicly told the New York Times, hey, I gave everything I had to John Solomon. He did great work with it. He didn't really indicate the level to which Giuliani's uh, – uh, associate Lev Parnas was feeding him information. He didn't acknowledge that uh, the lawyers that Giuliani was using, uh, for two former federal prosecutors who have been defenders of Trump, uh, were his own lawyers. Uh, and it seemed as though the framing at every turn was to make this as severe as possible. Uh, is there any way, Betsy, that your your news organization would not retract these stories given the level of uh, lack of candor, deceit, and weakness uh, uh, displayed in what the Hill's own review found? Look, it's hard to imagine. I mean, this this situation for the Hill is a real big mess. And it seems as though they haven't quite capped it off. We're discussing the week in the news. Betsy Ested, Amanda, stick around. We'd like all of you to stick around. Now we're going to talk a little bit about what all this means for the upcoming presidential election and where the Democratic field stands. I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. Three decades ago, Sterling Cuneo was an angry, violent teenager facing life without parole. Today, he's a celebrated author and a peacemaker. His journey is a window into how violence is perpetuated in this country, but it's also a story about how people change. There's no better example of a person who's prepared to be released. And about people changing the system. We have to reimagine what we're doing, because what we're doing isn't working. This is Cell Blocks to Mountaintops, a podcast and video series. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. In other news this week, jurors are deliberating in the case of Harvey Weinstein. China expels three Wall Street Journal reporters after taking offense at the headline of an opinion piece in the paper, which is separate from the news side. The regime continues to grapple both with the coronavirus and the fallout with the Chinese people over its control of information about the infectious disease. The top U.N. official for human rights calls the refugee crisis in Syria cruel beyond belief as hundreds of thousands of Syrians in the northwest of the country have been forced to flee a Syrian and Russian bombing campaign. And elections in Afghanistan. Both sides declare victory. The incumbent president is the official winner, but his opponent has pledged to run a parallel government. What will that mean for possible peace talks? We're monitoring these stories and more. I'm here today with a distinguished panel of guests, Ested Herndon, national political reporter for The New York Times, Betsy Woodruff-Swan, politics reporter at The Daily Beast, and Amanda Turkle. She's Washington bureau chief for HuffPost. Uh, you know, a caller uh, or listener uh, writes into us on Twitter, Calm O'Carton, excuse me, Calm, uh, talking a little bit about the question of the presidential pardons earlier. He said, the point of the pardons was to undermine the whole concept of white collar and political crime. It feeds into the public sense that all politics is corrupt and helps real Donald Trump, that is the president of the United States. I think that the president's Democratic uh, opponents, those seeking to take them on one-on-one -on -one this fall, uh, are pretty unified in that assessment. Uh, but they were not unified on the stage this week as they uh, debated in Las Vegas. During that debate on Wednesday, Senator Elizabeth Warren took something of a starring role. She directed her opening statement at Mike Bloomberg, and she squarely compared him to the target of the Democratic Party's uh, chief political campaigns. I'd like to talk about who we're running against. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. <laughs> Demo 
Democrats are not going to win if we have a nominee who has a history of hiding his tax returns, of harassing women, and of supporting racist policies like redlining and stop and frisk. Look, I'll support whoever the Democratic nominee is, but understand this. Democrats take a huge risk if we just substitute one arrogant billionaire for another. And I'd like to play you another clip. Lest you think that that was enough for Warren. Lest you think that, boy, she really got Mike Bloomberg on that. She didn't relent. She challenged Bloomberg about his nondisclosure agreements with former employees who have lodged accusations of sexual harassment against his company. We have a very few nondisclosure agreements. How, how many Let is Let me that? finish. How many is that? None of them accuse me of doing anything other than maybe they didn't like the joke I told. And let me just put, and let me put, there's a be agreements between two parties that wanted to keep it quiet, and that's up to them. Amanda Turkle, uh, you are Washington Bureau Chief for HuffPost. It is a uh, left of center uh, news outlet that has done a lot of reporting about the question of gender and about the role of women in this political campaign and the subject of uh, issues important to women in this uh, presidential campaign. Uh, what did you see up on that stage? Well, I mean, I, I, we knew that Bloomberg was going to face a lot of fire, but Warren really came out swinging. And, you know, we wrote a piece on – I wrote a piece on HuffPost uh, after the debate that this was sort of the real Elizabeth Warren, and we haven't seen her in quite a while. You know, the the Warren who uh, spawned the – she persisted meme, the, the Warren who would go after Wall Street executives and sort of leave them speechless, the sort of fighter that she became known for. And we haven't seen that on the campaign. She's been a lot calmer. She's been stressing unity. She's been chastising the candidates for attacking each other. And she just uh, became her old self again. And so, you know, Warren in the last debate did not get much speaking time. And I think that disappointed a lot of her supporters. And, and people saw a lot. Of, some people saw gender at play. You know, why was Warren there raising her hand and she wasn't called on? This time she and Amy Klobuchar, the other woman up on stage, obviously, uh, were given the most speaking time. And Warren went very hard uh, after Bloomberg for his treatment of women and these uh, non-disclosure agreements on sexual harassment from women who have worked at his company, that he said these are mutually beneficial non-disclosure agreements. And uh, quite honestly, that's just not true. Non-disclosure agreements do not be typically benefit the people making the claims. They are used by sort of companies and management to silence workers and to you know, accepting these settlements in order not to speak about what was going on. And Bloomberg could release these women and allow them to speak and talk about what happened in the company. And so far, he has refused to do so. And so that is what Warren was highlighting and obviously gave her this boost of publicity. Um, she raised, you know, sort of the most money she's raised off of this. Um, but it might be too late. You know, there's a lot of early voting going on already in Nevada and in the Super Tuesday states. And so it's not clear that this is what she will need to sort of get ahead of uh, her competitors. Amanda, is there any sense, you know, one thing that we've seen consistently on stage, which in a sense you alluded to, is the idea that Elizabeth Warren kept saying, we have to come together. If he's the nominee, I'll support him about various uh, rivals that, you know, whether it's Bernie Sanders or, or Bloomberg or whomever. Uh, but she has wanted to be sort of seen as, yes, I'm very progressive, but I'm a unifying force, not a divisive one, which is an implicit rebuke of Bernie Sanders. 
Can she knit that together with this combative, she persisted, uh, resilient, tough, really tough, uh, not simply professorial, but uh, but legalistically keen prosecution in a sense of 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 some of her rivals up there? I mean, we'll see. Uh, the old approach wasn't working for her. I mean, polls did show that, you know, she had very high rating uh, when people were asked, you know, who would you be fine with if they were the nominee? Um, Who's your you number know, when, two choice? Right, exactly. Who's your number two choice? Would you be upset if this person were the nominee? And people tend to like Warren. Um, and sort of that's what she was looking at. She could pull in some of the slightly more moderate voters who maybe didn't like Bernie Sanders. Um, but then she also had the progressive credentials that maybe could pull in some Sanders voters. And she made the case that she is the only one who could really do that and really knit the party together. Um, she also you know, wasn't going after her opponents quite as much because she ultimately uh, argued that she didn't want to destroy the Democratic Party in order to win the nomination. You know, if Joe Biden was going to be the nominee or Pete Buttigieg or Bernie Sanders or whoever, she didn't want to be going after them so hard and making arguments that Donald Trump could then use. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, she said that she is still willing to obviously support whoever is the nominee, even if it's Bloomberg. Uh, Clearly, she would be sort of holding her nose in doing so. But she's taking a more aggressive stance. Now, what she was doing wasn't working. She was not, you know, hitting that top two or, or leading the pack. And so, you know, she became popular sort of nationwide because of her fighting stance and sort of being willing to go after anyone to fight for what she believes in. So that seems to be what she's returning to now and sort of seeing if that'll work. Instead, this uh, was supposed to be in some ways the public uh you know, coming out for Mike Bloomberg, right? He had done started to do uh, certain events at, at various states, many of them not with not particularly imminent uh, primary votes being held. He certainly voided Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, but this was supposed to be a moment. Uh, Howard Wolfson, his uh, one of his chief political advisors, came out. I think it was yesterday and said essentially, uh, "This is on me. I didn't prep the the mayor that well, and it, that's it's my fault, not his." Uh, Anand Jirid Dardas, uh, who's the bane, a journalist who's the bane of uh, of the wealthy and the elites uh, at the moment, uh, tweeted today, "I don't think Mike Bloomberg had a bad night. I think he had a revealing night. I think that is who he is." Uh, Mike Bloomberg has spent several hundred million dollars, as I understand it, on ads blanketing various markets, uh, introducing himself to a national audience as, as a potential Democratic candidate. Uh, is this just a night that he's got to take his lumps and move forward? Or does this set his trajectory in a different path that's going to make it very hard for him to be credible? I think it's hard for us to know that now, but I would um, – I think this uh, exposes the challenges he will have. It is easy to exist as a candidate in someone's mind and their imagination, particularly when you have that amount of resources and you're not on the ballot, right? He won't be on the ballot in Nevada or South Carolina. It will still be uh, three contests before we actually have people vote and have the chance to embrace or reject Mike Bloomberg. But what he um, now knows because he has risen in these debates is next week, right, when we have the South Carolina one. He's going to know that he's going to be a target and he has to be able to hold his own. If his argument on those advertisements is that he is the best candidate to defeat Trump, that has to be translated in real life uh, when, when he is on that stage. But I wouldn't also overstate. Uh, what this debate will do, right? So I think that— It's pretty well watched, right? It's the most it was, best watched in a long time. 100 percent. was very well watched. But he'll have another one in six days, and he still wouldn't have been on the ballot if he comes back in that one. If Elizabeth Warren doesn't translate this into a good showing in Nevada and South Carolina, and there's also just a structural problem. Um, Joe Biden's candidacy is is teetering. 
and moderates have few options of where they can go, who can do what they uh, who can stop what they think is the worst result in terms of Bernie Sanders getting the nomination. And so the, the embrace of Bloomberg has never been one because folks thought that he was a particularly compelling politician, but one of uh, convenience. And that convenience is not going anywhere. And so I would I would caution people against thinking that one bad night changes the the, the trajectory of, of what was helping Bloomberg because the amount of resources are still there. The um, and most importantly, the the structural uh, concerns that were leading the people in the first place are also still there. Now, if Joe Biden does well, if he kind of rebounds, that changes things. Well, it's funny. Let me, in the, the interest of uh, you know of playful rhetorical argument here in the civil space of NPR, nonetheless, let me push back a little bit because it seems to me as though moderates have plenty of options. It seems to me as though you have. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, you have uh, Amy Klobuchar, you had Joe Biden, now you've got uh, Mike Bloomberg. And part of what appealed to people, it says this guy is the real billionaire, right? Uh, Trump, never always clear whether or not he's exactly a billionaire or not, whatever his claims Mm -hmm. are. Mike Bloomberg, truly a self-made man. Turns out Donald Trump did pretty well from dad, right? Uh, Mike Bloomberg uh, can pay for his own way and he's not going to have to worry about the bots because he can take care of this. Suddenly when Mike Bloomberg doesn't seem – I'm not saying that one debate knocks him out, but I am saying it seems to me as though his campaign's logic is, well, if Biden struggles, I'm the only logical alternative. But there are other moderates there who've been making their case for some months. I mean, they are there, but let's not – let's look at the scope of their candidacies. The FEC reports tell us that Buttigieg and Klobuchar have very little money. Um, the, the, they don't have staff in the ground on Super Tuesday states. They have shown very little traction with black and Latino voters who are the base of the moderates after we leave Iowa and New Hampshire. These were candidacies that were built on the idea that Iowa and New Hampshire would create momentum. Momentum that would translate in the later states, and that hasn't. We haven't really seen that develop. Now they've they haven't voted yet, right? So I would caution to say that's not completely true until we see the results in Nevada and South Carolina. But there is no indication that Buttigieg and Klobuchar are someone who can unite even the moderate wings of Democrats. They seem at this point to be regional candidates in an Iowa, New Hampshire, and so of that view. That's that's the difference of where Bloomberg is thinking about this and what you laid out, because in that view, there is no Joe Biden alternative besides him. He is the only one that will be have has the ground game in those states already, has the amount of resources in those states already and is not um, and 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 would be in his articulation the Super Tuesday option to stop Bernie Sanders. Question asked and question answered. <laughs> We've got a couple of uh, uh, calls, messages left to us from listeners who get at another important dynamic uh, within this – related uh, within this campaign. Listener Robert called in from New Mexico. He's a self-avowed Bernie Sanders supporter who argued the breadth of the senator's appeal is being widely overlooked. Why is it possible for NPR and uh, all the major media to skirt the uh, fact that Bernie Sanders is – Polling number one, people don't seem to mind. The only people seem to mind that he's a socialist as Medicare is socialist, as Social Security is socialist. None of the uh, media seem to mind just totally ignoring the fact that he is number one and he's not only attracting young people. I'm pushing 70, getting a lot of exercise doing that. And I would vote for Bernie Sanders over any of the other. Uh, candidates on the ballot. 
I believe Robert is saying he's getting a lot of exercise at the age of almost 70 rather than saying he's getting exercised over uh, the senator's uh, characterization in the media. Uh, David called in from Charlottesville with this question about the Democrats' uh, rival appeals to transform American government and American society. I don't understand why none of the Democrats are talking about the fact that there are a lot of people in the country who are doing relatively well. Um, We just want to see Trump gone. Um, They all think um, that that we want the entire system torn down. And if that's the only option they give us, I don't think they're going to win. There are a lot of people who are disgusted with Trump but are doing okay, are happy with their health care. Um, I wish they just give us a normal, moderate option um, to, so that we can get Trump out and start addressing climate change and bring some sense of normalcy back. And I just don't, don't see that person on the stage right now. Betsy Woodruff Swan, I'm going to let you have the final uh, weigh in on this. We've got about a minute left. Uh, talk to us about these twin tensions and where this goes for the party. How you can, you know, Bernie Sanders is the front runner. He's getting 20 to 30 percent. And yet there's a lot of folks who have trepidation, as that caller from Charlottesville just uh, articulated. I think it's it's certainly right that there's been and uh, shall we say a misunderestimation of Bernie Sanders <laughs> in some corners of the national media and that criticism in my view is is well taken. At the same time, the Charlottesville caller makes a point that many national Democrats make, which is that part of the reason for the one time Democrats have beaten Trump on the ballot, 2018 in uh, House midterms, part of the reason they beat him in large part was because they were able to court voters who'd never voted for Democrats before, including many suburban Republican women. Uh, Some of that, just from chatting with some of the Democratic members of Congress who've won those competitive seats, they'll tell you a big part of the reason some of these freshman Democrats got their spots was because they were able to persuade Republican women that Trump was so bad they needed to test the waters of voting for a Democrat. So a big open question is, for people who don't necessarily want to see the system turned upside down, for people who are okay with health insurance existing as an industry, can Bernie Sanders win those voters who right now, at least at this moment, appear to be an important part of what the new Democratic anti-Trump coalition is going to look like? Those are the closing words. Betsy Woodruff, Swan, Politics Report at Daily Beast. Betsy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. We've also been hearing from Amanda Turkle. She's the bureau chief in Washington, D.C. for Huffington Post, uh, HuffPost, I should say. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you. And here in studio, Usted Herndon, national political reporter for The New York Times. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much. I just want to take a moment to thank all of our listeners who have left such insightful voicemails these past couple of weeks. These really are a direct way for us here at On Point to let you help shape the narrative arc of the roundtable discussions. Calls from Jim in Nebraska, Mary Jane in Maine, Andrew in Michigan, Sarah from Rhode Island, all them and more. Your questions helped us better understand the week's top news stories. If you've been considered sharing your thoughts, call in 617-353-0683. That's 617-353-0683. It helps make us better. I'm David Folkenflick, and this is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. Can Profit Motive Save the Planet is a company that takes the climate into account a better investment. How about one that pays workers a living wage and champions transparency and board diversity? That's the idea of ESG, or environmental social governance. Sounds like a wonderful story. You can make more money, you can save the planet at the same time. Almost no one is going to turn that down. It's a story that Andy King of Questrom and Veet Hennish of the Wharton School challenged during a recent event at Questrom. Professor King played the critic who says these are problems for regulation to solve, not markets. 
As a famous economist said to me, you can't fix externalities with the profit motive because the profit motive is not linked to externalities. Externalities are the byproduct of pursuing profits. So you can't fix them by getting people to even look harder at profits. Meanwhile, Veet emphasized that ESG can be an important part of the solution. Regulation matters, and we need better regulation. And we need to reallocate trillions of dollars of capital over time to the climate transition alone, forgetting social justice, racial justice, and other ESG issues. We're going to need the profit motive for that. No government regulation is going to reallocate tens of trillions of dollars of capital alone. It's going to be investors who are looking at current government regulation and future government regulation and trying to connect the dots. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken? wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets and Society at ibms.bu.edu. 